Hi, this is Claire Berlinski with the Cosmopolicast, and we have Vladislav Davidson back again to discuss his new book, which I just read. And Vlad, I loved it. I loved it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. I have to say, I was sort of wondering, am I really going to enjoy reading this yesterday evening when I had, I thought I, I, I kind of under pressure to read it quickly and just wasn't sure I was in the mood for a book about Jews in Ukraine and Ukrainian Jews. I couldn't put it down. I loved it. It's so, well, let me back up a little bit. Why don't you introduce your book and um, I will add a few comments after you've told people what it's about. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for having me on again. So to my neighbor, Claire, and friend, we uh, live uh, close to each other in uh, in Paris, in an undisclosed neighborhood, although I'm sure every intelligence agency that wants to know where it is that we live already has our locations. Mm. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we, we uh, are celebrating the publication of my second book. It's called The Birth of a Political Nation. It's about Jews and Ukrainians. It's a selection of my best and most interesting pieces on this perennial theme between 2013 and 23. So 10 years of my best pieces. I selected 2022 of my uh, most interesting articles, the ones I think are most useful, and uh, added new stuff, padded them out, and created a narrative. So yeah, in it all ways, fits together. Yes. yes. It fits together as a book. Absolutely, right? Does it, You mm -hmm. can tell that it does, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... It's really linked. Anyone who's in any way interested in modern Ukraine um, and who is, because of the war, has heard a great deal about Ukraine, but doesn't really know what this country is like. This book will, will I feel like I've been there now. Uh, no, no writer could get higher praise. Oh, well, they could actually. I mean, the introduction from Bernard Henri Levy is pretty good. <laughs> I I I I uh, I I love it. I rather love it, but some people might think I'm a bit of a character having read it. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were telling people about the book. So the book, uh, yes, the book is a collection of my thoughts. It is about politics. It is about memory politics. It is about trauma. It is about minority rights. It is about politics with a big P and politics with a small P. It is about history. It is about Russian propaganda. It is about Putin's obsessiveness. It is about the key to understanding this conflict, which is two different conceptions of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional Slavic state post-Soviet. Hmm. On the Russian side, you have a markedly totalitarian, authoritarian, centralized autarky that has difference uh, in terms of particularity subsumed to an autarkic idea of the state. On the other side, you have a liberal, democratic, very messy conception of a modern polity in the middle of Europe, one of actually the most uh, liberal in many ways, and one of the most multi-ethnic, certainly in uh, the terraformed after Hitler lands of the bloodlands in Eastern Europe, whatever you want to call it, uh, Timothy Schneider's bloodlands. Mm, mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. So you have two different conceptions of how to run a Slavic post-Soviet state with a lot of different kinds of people living in it. That's the same with Russia. Russia is also a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional, multi-racial, multicultural, multi-religious state. Mm-hmm. And you have two different ideas of how to uh, uh, how to run it. And you have two different generations of people. One, a Soviet regime, the Putin regime in its 60s. And then you have the, the uh, liberal democratic Zelensky political regime, a mm-hmm. liberal regime, which is in its 40s. So you have two different ideas and two different generations fighting over what the future of an Eastern European post-Soviet state will be. And the Jews, as a people, as an idea, as an apparition, as a figure of speech and a figure of uh, uh, image of literature and history and propaganda, are in the middle of this. So you have, you know, even if you're not interested in Jews, it's a very interesting book about memory politics. And, Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, the thesis, the central thesis of the book is that if you understand the story of Ukrainian Jewry over the last decades since the Maidan Revolution, you understand the development of Ukraine as a modern nation state. And I was, as I was reading it, I thought absolutely well said. Thank you. I wish. Uh, can I? Can I actually have that? I'm sending the the last proofs into the into the <laughs> into the editor today. I can actually get that on the back cover. Would you like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, is there you're sending the last proof because I found some typos. I wasn't going to mention them to you. I, would you please now? This is the. This is, oh, I didn't. Send, I thought it was too late. Yeah, I'll I'll send you um, a. Please send me the typos immediately. <laughs> immediately. Well, I didn't realize that it was too late, so I was wasn't going to tell you. You're working. Uh, you were work, you're working with a pre-final edit uh, uh, PDF. We're we're sending the last edit in, uh, to to the uh, to the. But the draft I have is people. the one you're working from. The draft you have is, yeah, indeed, it is the one that you're working. Yeah, I mean, I copy edited it. My friends copy edited it. I mean, the people on the podcast don't care about this. If you order this book today, how long will it take to get to you? Uh, the book will be out in a month. I, I imagine people will get it in six weeks, uh, five but weeks. But they can pre-order weeks. it now. Totally. They should pre-order it right now. They really should pre-order it. I just wanted to say something about that. It is not an inexpensive book. It's $42. And that would well, be- here, here, Oh, by the by, way, by, by, speaking of which, we uh, right before this, since we're right in the, in the final things, we are lowering the price. Really? To, I think 31 or $30 because the the Ibn uh, people in the Columbia University Press people decided that I'm just that cool that I can sell more books rather than less so we're oh, lowering the book price to 30 dollars. i i didn't love the fact that it was an expensive book where yeah you know, it's, it's... and i think a book like this the price is going to be very elastic the lower it is the more people will buy it yeah i mean we're that's why we're lowering the price come or step right up step right up we're lowering the price one time only come to brooklyn 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 home of the dodgers home of home of Vladislav davidson home of donald trump and front trump come <laughs> step right up step right up Carl get Barker, Jews, get your Jews, book. get your Ukrainians, <laughs> get your Jews, get your Jews, get your hot dogs, get your Jews, get your, all right. Um, was I just, yeah, I was just saying for me, $30 is still an expensive book. For me, that's not an impulse purchase. Um, an impulse purchase for me is $5 and that's how much I think a book should cost. But I'm aware that I'm, a, um, that this is completely out of step with, with modern book publishing. Nonetheless, I'm going to tell people. I, I, you could steal books also, Claire. There, there are people who believe that. Yeah, that's grotesque. Um, you should you should buy it. 
because it's a beautiful book first, because it's got Vlad's artwork in it. And it is, it's, it's really worth it. I mean, most people will need to be convinced a little bit, but I really think it's, it's worth $30 to read this book. It's um, given me a better insight into Ukrainian culture than any other book I've read. And I think that's important because people are outside of Ukraine or connecting to Ukraine as a as a culture war totem or, or or an abstract idea. But this this brought the people alive and it brought the culture alive. And perhaps now I think of it a little bit too much like Brooklyn, but it it does it really brought a rich, vibrant culture to life. And to the extent that you can measure the health, the moral health of a society by the by its treatment of Jews. Um, and, and minorities in general. It's a heuristic for treatment of minorities. Jews are, yeah, of course, the I ultimate think, minority. They're a really good measure because Jews are always the ones who are persecuted first, right? So we're noticeable. Yeah. We're complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're economically productive. It's not it's not a huge community of Jews, a quarter of a million, right? Um uh, no but... one actually look, here's the thing, no one really knows the numbers. I mean, some some people say as much as a million if you count a lot of people who don't know that they're Jewish, who find out that they're Jewish late in life. There the, there are a lot of people who are Habsies, who are quarters. There there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in Ukraine, much less now because of the war, because the population of Ukraine has been emptied out uh by refugee flows. There are a lot of Jews now from Ukraine in Brooklyn and Florida and Israel and uh, Russia. If they were on the other side of a divide, if they were on the other side of a of the of the border, it's like three million Russian uh, Ukrainian refugees into into Russia because they were on the other side of a, of the country. That's where you could fly to. Um, a lot of them in Poland because there are millions of Ukrainians in Poland, and Ukrainian Jews are Ukrainians after all. And so, from the way you describe it, it's a big, boisterous community. It's a very Jewish, Jewish community with lots of, you know, no one's hiding it. No one's, no one's ashamed of it. They are. Some people, some people, some people are, and some people, for them, it's not important, including some people who've been prime minister recently. Uh, no names. Uh, the, the current president, of course, is a Jew and he doesn't hide it. He's very elegantly deployed during the war for the greater good. And there are a lot of Jews, unlike Poland, unlike Hungary, unlike, you know, other Eastern and Central European states where, where the Nazis were more successful in terraforming the landscape. Yeah. There are a lot of Jews in Ukraine, and it's a Jewish country with a large Jewish diaspora still, just what, like Russia. What's remarkable is that this has occurred in a country that is, for most Jews, synonymous with anti-Semitism. Which is, which is something that I'd really like to change, by the way. Well, it's you can't change the history, but certainly it sounds as if Ukraine has changed. I would like I would like to be very precise uh, for Ukraine to be stopped to stop being synonymous with, with Jew hatred. That's one of my that's something that I'm working on. That's something that I think of as my as my mandate. That's something that is part of my life's work. I'm not the only one who cares about this, but it's important to me. Mm, it is important. It is important. Um, gosh, just the other day, I think we had a reader cancel his subscription because um, he had lost relatives in Ukraine and found and found the idea of supporting Ukraine militarily intolerable. Um, I would please give me his email and phone number. I will personally email him and call him and have a nice conversation with him. If he's if he's 
if he's uh, he could be Polish. I mean, he could, if he's a Jewish gentleman, I would like to have a personal conversation with him. I will hunt down uh, and have a per- personal, intimate conversation with every single Jew in the Ashkenazi, English-speaking, Russian-speaking, Ukrainian, French-speaking world, and have <laughs> explain to them why this is important one by one. <laughs> All right. Well. Let's talk about the book, because there's lots of points here that I, I, I really wanted to talk about with you. First of all, this um, introduction by BHL, it's just beautiful. He really got you. And uh, BHL, he, likes me. B, he does. He loves you. BHL is um, a French intellectual, very well-known French intellectual who, um, well, Perhaps this will be demoralizing for you to hear, but when he shows up in an, at a conflict, you know he's, you know, someone's about to be genocided. <laughs> but he's, he's usually on the right side of things, and he's, he's uh, great. He's absolutely great. Anyways, yeah, love him. Except when it comes to cats. Um, I, look, 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 uh, look. It's okay. Maybe he has an allergy. It's okay. I realized that to read BHL and appreciate him, you have to read him out loud. If you just read him on the page. For the Anglophone ear, he's unbearably pretentious. But I discovered, because I was reading a book I was supposed to review out loud, that he sounds much better if you read him out loud. It actually is the way it's meant to be read. Because Perhaps. he's an orator. He's an orator exactly. and an oracular writer. Exactly. He's telling, he's telling a story in an 18th, 19th century oracular Exactly. Oratory tradition, and it, it just doesn't it doesn't translate perfectly from French because just the cadences, the the uh, it just doesn't translate perfectly from French. And, and uh, if a lot more people ever read him in French or read him in or the better parts of, of his of his uh, over which are the more poetic parts, less political parts out loud, they would understand that this is a kind of uh, oracular, syncretic storyteller who's, well, who's I'm about to singing read a beautiful song. Can I read a Please. little bit of the introduction? So Please he, do. It's just a wonderful introduction. He says, Vlad came into my life upon my return from Ukraine in 2014. And I'm going to skip a little bit. From Paris to Kiev, from Tangiers to the south of France and New York, I've gotten to know this startup intellectual, as mischievous as a child and fascinated by rakes with a devilish laugh and a taunting gaze, arrogant and clever, impulsive, but never credulous, ambitious, but indecisive, erudite and poetic. I mean, I don't think I've ever received a love letter <laughs> nicer than that. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, I, uh, I, any woman who got a love letter like that has to go to bed with a man who sent it to her. Exactly. <laughs> was he a poet or a dilettante, a devil or a dandy? Was he American or European, Uzbek, Russian or Ukrainian? Was he bragging when he declared them the day Russia invaded Ukraine? For he was one of the few people who I know who, like me, never doubted that the day would come. He would tear up his Russian passport in front of Putin's embassy in Paris. Well, we know you weren't bragging because we went together to do that. Thank you yet again, Claire. Solid as a rock. Brave. Funny. <laughs> I mean, I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to keep reading from it because it's just so love. Oh, here was straight Oscar Wilde. Straight Oscar Wilde. Converted overnight into the most curious, intrepid, and acute of war reporters without ever giving up the stylish pouch he wore with the bulletproof vest, without forgoing his matching jacket and socks, and above all, without sacrificing anything of his humor and composure. He goes on. I, I don't want to spend the whole time on this, but he goes on to say that um, for certain people, uh, a certain historic event brings together all of their talents and all of their insight. And um, how does he put it exactly? He's where does he say? If we're, um, 
Michel Aris. A historical event that everything within you sensed approaching, an event that once it occurs, pulls together the scattered thoughts, brings back dreams from childhood, awakens unused strengths, imparts an aspiration to greatness that prior circumstances had not allowed to emerge. In short, an event that mobilizes and crystallizes the most secret and noble part of the soul. And he says, the war in Ukraine is your war. <laughs> And by the way, and, and it's totally correct, by the way, when full Lord Byron, I mean, I didn't even know how crazy and how how uh, intense and, and how uh, how like amazingly insane I was uh, and how deeply Slavic I was in all, all the ways that my grandfathers and great grandfathers fought during the wars. And yeah, the war, the war, you know, you really discover who you are at war. And I uh, uh, I, I had no idea how. Um, how focused and intense and and uh, uh, just like. I felt no fear. I just, you know, I just moved with with total brazenness until I burned out after about six months. But of course, everyone does. That's why we rotate people out. But well, you just uh, I, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think you, know, you should tell our listeners about that. Well, you know, it's I just came back from Odessa and um, Uman. I was there yeah, for, about for Uman. Oh my God! I'm writing an article now about my uh, my dear friend Luzer Tversky, who played the Baal Shem Tov. He's an American actor in a film called Dov Bush, and we went to Uman for Rosh Hashanah, the eve of Rosh Hashanah, uh, out of Rosh Hashanah, in order to find his long lost sons. He he got divorced at the age of 21. He lost custody of the boys, and he hadn't seen them until his late 30s. He wanted to find the 17 year old son and tell him that he had his blessing before his wedding day. Tell, tell our listeners about Uman. I mean, uh, you've, you've got a chapter here describing it. Um, you describe it as the burning man of Jews. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. I mean, the burning man of Jews is about right. Yeah, it, it, it was a, it's just a, it, it's, it, it's just an insane place to be. It's full of, uh, uh, full of searchers and very religious, very from people, but also just a lot of hippies. I mean, I, I someone asked me to translate for the cops. And she was just this uh, large-bosomed Persian-American girl with an Israeli passport who's just a hippie or a weirdo of some sort. And then I, I, I translated for her for the police because she was arguing with a Ger- with a German uh, camera guy. And in exchange for my help, she said, "You know, I have an NGO called Weed the Homeless, and in exchange for your help, I'd like to give you this br- brick of hashish." So <laughs> there's a lot of really drugged up people there's a lot of people who are high on narcotics really and, oh yeah there's a lot of so it really is like burning men oh yeah yeah there, there are a lot of people who are high on their own supply to say fantasia and mysticism and on the atmosphere but there are a lot of people who are just running around really literally high on drugs that kind of surprises me why i don't know maybe it shouldn't yeah i guess it shouldn't i mean mystical yeah exactly. I mean, there's a, yeah there's a lot of they're like there are a lot of secular israelis a lot of a lot of uh, israeli guys safari guys who come tough guys who like a good party and like like you know they're they're fairly secular very traditional but they you know it's really interesting how this ashkenazi mysticism this hasidic mysticism became kind of an arab jewish safari thing you know yeah for, you know, for the a lot of, that. of our listeners who might not know who Nachman was or why all these people are, are making this pilgrimage. Why don't you just briefly explain what this is? So the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, was a mystic from the Carpathian Mountains in the 18th century, early 18th century, about 300 years ago, 
250 years ago, something like that, maybe 320. And he had a great grandson, one of the many expositors of his values. The, the, uh, the, the mystical expositor of his values was the Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who codified a very happy version of mystical Judaism, where you worship God not by studying and textual criticism, uh, studying, studying, studying the Torah, but instead dancing and drinking and fornicating and having fun and uh, being close to God through your mysticism. So did it was a very peasant form of mysticism. That? Sorry? Did Jews not dance before that? Because I thought dancing was always part of being a Jew. I think it was always a part of being a Jew, but not like not like these guys did it. These guys just really made dancing into a theology. I mean, <laughs> they, they stripped the theology and they kept the dancing. Yeah, so you it's a, a much more intense, personal, mystical kind of Judaism. Um, Correct. And um, this is this is kind of the world from which Isaac Bashevis Singer comes, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, a lot of other people. This is yeah. This is a very Mountain Jew, Eastern European phenomenon, which reached its apotheosis in the nineteenth century, and then of course was destroyed by Hitler. Yeah. That world was. Uh, I mean, they they uh, they they were very badly prepared for Hitler. They they were. Wearing black coats, they didn't have um, education. They didn't know languages outside of Hebrew and Yiddish. Some of knew Russian and Ukrainian, but it, it, the Hasidim were uh, the most open towards. Uh, I mean, like open targets, not open, but they were yeah. they were they the most openly targeted because they were easiest to get. Yeah. They were wearing black black hats and you know black coats, and they they were not very worldly. They they were either eradicated or wound up in Israel or. Um, Antwerp or the UK or mostly New York City, New York State. Well, some obviously survived in Ukraine. How many actually survived and have been living there continuously? Well, some of them survived and, and had to give up their, their religiosity and become Soviet citizens. They couldn't operate as Hasidism throughout Soviet times. I mean, they were, there were not black, black hats in Soviet times, obviously. There was an interregnum of about 80 years where you couldn't behave like that. Yeah. And yeah. And in that same way, when Uman was forbidden uh, as a place of pilgrimage during Soviet times, very intrepid and very brave dissident types would go there uh, uh, on uh, Rosh Hashanah. And it was a it was a place where in the in the 80s, I think by the late 70s, certainly by the early 80s, a lot of very intrepid travelers would, well, would, would uh, travel. What happens? The, the Soviet Union collapses. And then do people who have been... Hold it on. dissolved, Claire. By the way, one of my pet peeves when people say collapsed, it dissolved actually, relatively painlessly until now. Uh, unlike unlike Yugoslavia or the uh, the Turkish Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Soviet the Soviet dissolution was actually relatively bloodless. There were regional wars between the uh, Georgians, the Armenians, and Azeris. There were wars in the Caucasus. Uh, and there was a war, uh, obviously, between the Chechens and the Russians. But for the most part, other than the, the clearly the, 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 the invasion of Moldova and all that, for the most part, the Russians took 15 years off before inflicting the, the pain of the collapse of, of, uh, 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 of, of losing the empire on the rest of us. Yeah. The invasion of Georgia, uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine, the Russians... Uh, 
you know, they took 15 years off in order to deal with their own stuff. Uh, obviously, this is the this, these are the final earthquakes of the collapse of the empire. The empire has been dissolving for 30 years. It didn't happen overnight. Empires are very big. They live mm-hmm. a different lifespan than than people do, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't like it when people say collapsed. It dissolved at first peacefully, but it turns out not so peacefully. We fought, and I say this in the in the uh, in the introductory article that we had avoided the uh, the bloodletting of Yugoslavia and the Austro-Hungarian and Turkish empires upon its dissolution into national states. That was not the case. Explain to me when when the Soviet Empire dissolves, um, were the Jews in Ukraine had they been practicing this secretly, or did they return from Israel or from abroad to come back to to revive this tradition? Well, so here, uh, uh, so for the most part, they were all secularized. Like, let's say 97, 99% of them were secularized. Some, some, some obviously a million and a half had been killed during the Holocaust. Let's say another million or so left to Israel and America, including my own family, in the 80s and 90s. And then a lot went to Germany. Um, you had a couple of hundred thousand people left over out of a community of several millions. Uh, uh, Hitler, Hitler had his solution to quote unquote problem. Stalin's solution was to to make them good Soviet citizens and destroy their culture. And uh, some some of them went to America from safety from the safety perspective. That was actually over the 20th century, the correct choice. Uh, uh, some of them went to Israel and they became Israelis. That was a Zionist solution. And the ones that stayed had to give up Judaism in order to become Soviet citizens. So that was the price of this culture. I, I assume there were no pilgrimages under the Soviet Union. Well, I mean, the, the, the rabbis uh, and Israeli Mossad guys that I talked to who started doing it started doing it in the late 80s when, when the system was collapsing. They started coming in the late 80s. There was, there was a kind of general, let's say, American gold rush for souls, to mix, uh, mix metaphors, in the 90s. There were a lot, there were a lot of people who came uh, from all religious backgrounds, especially evangelical. To fish for souls in the former Soviet republics, mm. and there was a general religious revival in all fifteen Soviet republics because religion is part of human nature and part of a normal, ordinary, orderly human society. And people need clerics, and they 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 it, it has a special place in 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 social structures. Obviously, you're not going to get rid of religion. We tried in the Soviet Union. That that experiment failed. And all across the Soviet Union, you had religious revival. Uh, uneven, some places more than others. In some places, the church or the mosque became captured by the state. Uh, let's say Azerbaijan or um, uh, Turkmenistan or Russia, for that matter. In some places, that process was stalled because they never went through decommunization, Belarus. In some places, it was normal because people just re- returned to having a normal country, like the like the Baltic success states, success stories. In Ukraine, it was a mixed story because so many people re- re- just didn't come back to religiosity. Most most people in Ukraine uh, are still mostly secular, and most Jews are mostly secular. And when the American missionaries came in the '90s, they mostly did their work not in the West, which was deeply Catholic and Greco-Catholic, they did their work in the South and the East, both in the Christian and the Jewish missionary communities. They they worked mostly in, in the Donbass and in the South. Jewish so, missionaries? Well, I mean, like, they're not, like, no one, no one 
proselytizers in Judaism, but these were like Orthodox Jews, often from uh, Chabad communities who came yeah. and they offered services and they started up communities again. So was so, the pilgrimage to Amman, was that invented then or had that been a regular occurrence before the Soviet? Uh, I think it was a, I think it was a regular occurrence. Uh, I don't know about Russian imperial times. It's a great question, actually. It was uh, something that people did uh, during late Soviet times. And during the 90s, it became a big thing. So I, I've been a couple of times. So it's possible that this historic annual pilgrimage is something sort of a recent invention? In its modern version of 35,000 people and like a Jewish discotheque of drugs. Yes, yeah, certainly. That's that's very modern. <laughs> so did you feel that um, did you feel the religious? Did you feel the mysticism? Yeah, yeah, it's very it's always very intense. I mean, it's very, very, very intense. It's like a it's like a little a very intense version of B'nai B'rek in Brooklyn. Plopped down, B'nai B'rek is where the old Orthodox live in, is in Jerusalem. Plopped down in the middle of, uh, of, uh, uh, of um, Ukraine. It has a very Israeli atmosphere. I would say, like the like, uh, despite the fact that there's a lot of uh, Hasidim and Brooklyn Hasidim, it's just a very Israeli kind of harried atmosphere. Like it, the kebab stands are run by Israelis and run in Israeli fashion. The the, the businesses are run in Israeli fashion. It's very, it's very deeply. Israeli, uh, in that sense, like you know, secular, a, a re religious version of a syncretic secular Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like I, going better in that regard in Ukraine than they are in Israel. If you've seen the news, it's just awful. Fights broke out in Dizengoff oh. Street and Tel Aviv over Yom Kippur and the segregation of the sexes. But yes, yes, I did notice that. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, there's segregation of the sexes in in Oman also, but it's just a. Uh, that's voluntary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, go ahead. No, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, yeah, so I went to see, my, I went to find my friend's sons with him. He had, he had not seen his sons in two years. And I went, I'm writing an article about this now. It'll come out in tablet. And um, yeah. So you just got back how many days ago? About three days ago from Ukraine. All right. So. I want to talk to you about this great interview that you have with um, Borislav Bereza. Is that how you pronounce it? Bereza, yeah, yeah. My friend who's now, now a member. He, no, he lost uh, uh, his parliamentary seat in 2019. He was a member of the Ukrainian parliament 2014 to 2019. He was like a straight up, he was the spokesman for right sector. He was a Jewish guy. You got to explain what right, right sector, sector is. Right sector is, um, well, when, kind when, of a, a nationalist, a very nationalist organization. Well, when people say that the far right isn't very powerful in Ukraine, they'll say things like, look, the right sector only got this tiny percentage of the vote. Right. And their spokesman was an Orthodox Jew. And that's, <laughs> that's the part that's mind blowing. His, the spokesman is an Orthodox Jew. So these Nazis, I mean, this is this is what this yeah. is the, the the group that makes people say Ukraine is full of Nazis. Yeah, yeah, I, I was like, what about the what about the Nazi stuff? And he's like, bro. He's like a tough. He's a tough guy. He served in the Israeli Defense Force. He's a tough guy. He says, "Bro, what are you talking about? We have ultra right wing patriots of every race, of every creed, of every color." <laughs> I mean, he's great. The, he's, he's the interview great. itself it it conveys how sort of surreal this is. Um, yeah, that was from 2014. I think he's really playing it up to the crowd. But yes, that's not. <laughs> it's not. Um, 
I don't. It's not uh, unrepresentative of of that moment of of his moment and him. I have to point out the right sector has been somewhat folded into other organizations. It's it's declined. Other right wing patriotic organizations are much more important now. It, a, a lot of the it was run like a McDonald's, unlike Azov or something else. Uh, it was run like uh like basically a chain uh, uh franchise, and every right sector in every town was run by different guys. And a lot of those right sectors, it was just a local militia, paramilitary uh, uh, crime groups of coal that took on the name right sector. There was not one right sector by 2017-18. Right sector has declined now and it's not really as important. There are still people in organizations that call themselves right sector, but a lot of them have been dismantled by the Ukrainian intelligence services because they, were, they became um, basically... Uh, foreign bandit structures. What I found, among other th- among the things that I found interesting about the interview was his defense of Bandura. That's um, great. Yeah, that's great. It, it means obviously a bit revisionist, but it does suggest how Ukrainians view Bandura. It's so repellent from the outside because we know who he is, but they obviously do not have uh, an accurate historical portrait of him. Well, first of all, yeah, the 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 uh, yeah, it's there's a lot to say on that. Yeah, they don't know who Bandera was. First of all, secondly, there's a lot of Soviet propaganda about Bandera. So when they embraced Bandera, it, it's like a screw you to the Russian Soviet mentality and Soviet narrative. That's one thing. The uh, another thing is that Bandera is a pet project of certain of certain ideological people. Um, well without naming their names, who came to power in 2014 with the Poroshenko administration. And it was really a regional phenomenon that captured uh, national memory politics, the, the re, you know, the country over. So Bandera is not something that anyone in Chernigiv or Odessa in the south, Chernigiv is in the north, or certainly in Kharkiv care about. He has nothing to do with the history of the Donbass, even very, very, very right-wing Ukrainian nationalists from uh, uh, Donbass cities like Mariupol or or uh, Lugansk or Donetsk, they have other heroes that they're more into. You, you talk to really, really, really right-wing Ukrainian guys or you know whatever patriotic guys from these you know groupsicles who are you know the guys who fight in the middle in a military conflict, and they don't care about Bandera. Bandera is very much in a Western Ukrainian thing that was hoisted in terms of memory policy on the rest of a country, I'm, you know, if, in a perfect world, that would not be the historical antecedent for resistance that the Ukrainians yeah, would look I mean, at. It's not doing Ukrainians any favors because people who want to... Well, I, well, here's the thing. I'm okay. As the Ukrainian Jew, I like, I, I accept Bandera. It's Shukhevich and other people who I don't like. I, I, there are much worse characters than than uh, than Bandera. One. Uh, two... Uh, like the Rudo Banderovitz flag. I wore my red and black Rudo uh, uh, Banderovitz flag with a red and black Megan David in Uman. And I had Israelis were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a Judeo Banderovitz. And they're like, what the hell? Bandera is good? I said, no. I mean, this is post-Bandera. This is appropriation. Well, there's two banderas. There's of, a historic of... Bandera and there's the, um, the Bandera that people... There's the Bandera who symbolizes something modern and has nothing to do with the historic Bandera. Correct. I mean, yes. I mean, but I wouldn't again, have known I, that if I hadn't read your book. I, 
Yeah, that's right. They're all like the valorization of OU, OU, OUN is, as the kids nowadays say, like problematic. But also, you know, there's a war on, and I'm not going to tell Ukrainians whose who statues to put up. And I had a, you know, I went to see the, I went to see the uh, Zelensky's first prime minister that, without naming his name a week before the war started. I was going doing the rounds in Kiev, seeing politicians, you know, seeing who's going to do what during the war. It was already obvious that there was going to be a war. And it was like a week before the war started. And I went to see Zelensky's former prime minister, uh, technocratic prime minister. I said, what do you think about Bandera? We had a long conversation. He's like, well, it's our history. I was like, yeah, I know. I know. And that, that was that was that's that's symbolized for me, the, the reaction, which is like shrug. Well, that's our history. And I said, we respect that. Yeah, I respect that as a Ukrainian Jew. Ukrainian Jews mostly don't care. It's it's outsider Jews who care. It's it's Russian Jews who who make a issue of it and it's poles for whom it's a real problem you know yeah because yeah. killed more poles than jews it's a real problem diplomatically in terms of relationships with poles uh it would be much better if they had not chosen landed on the name bandera to symbolize the resistance look i had a look i had a i have a friend who is a hipster he's a odessan born conceptual artist mm-hmm. he's a hipster he lives in berlin and he makes conceptual art he's my friend and he once uh, made a uh, a uh, jocular, but it was very hilarious, uh, Bandera Bandera themed musical, and the theme song of, of a song written by my friend, a, a, a Jew from Odessa, a conceptual artist, was was he a villain or was he a hero? Pa, 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 pa. Bandera. All right, <laughs> all right. So I just want to read one little bit of this interview before moving Please. on to the chapter. You, you ask him, you say right sector, you say to the spokesman, is also often accused of being quite reactionary on the question of LGBT rights, gay rights. What's your relationship personally and also as a party toward gays? And he says, the infringement of LGBT rights is much like anti-Semitism, a real and substantive problem. But I don't know of a single country where homophobia doesn't exist. I do not know of a country where there are no homophobes or xenophobes. Such people exist everywhere. Personally, I have no issues with LGBT and think this is a matter of personal freedom. Yet even more than that, I personally want to go on the record as saying that I love the work of Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's a deeply piratical character. He's got a he's got a left uh in his left ear, ear he has a he has a earring, and he, he's he's got like a cool jacket on. He's like, I love the gays, right? Sector, we love the gays, we love the gays. Uh, and then you tell, him, you tell him you come off as an honest guy, and I believe you. Did you believe everything he said? In the moment, I didn't know what to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know now better. Anyway, he was he was reprimanded by the Central Committee of Right Sector right after this interview for unsanctioned statements about the gays. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he like he 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 uh, he. Say left, what you want about uh, the gays, man? But saying that about Freddie Mercury. <laughs> he says Right Sector's Central Committee and Politburo does not favor these comments in favor of Freddie Mercury. All right, so. The next chapter, I, I really admire the way you do this. It flows pretty naturally because you introduce Sheptitsky. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Sheptitsky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I write a lot about I, I write a lot about Sheptitsky in the book. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like you did a lot of archival research. Is this all your own research? Or are you drawing on the work of other scholars? Mm. Uh. Uh, you don't have to answer that. It can be drawn uh, from 
Um, you know, you know, um, look, I, I did talk to scholars. In fact, one one very pedantic scholar accused me of this is such primitive. This is such primitive reductionist garbage. And I, I was like, welcome to journalism, brother. And, you know, I, you know, uh, you know, I tried to I tried to, I read everything that there was in the scholarly history in English, some in Ukrainian. I, I talk I don't read Polish very well. So I, I talked to to sources who were um, uh, au courant with the Polish scholarship. Yeah. Yes. I, I just wanted to mention this skipping around a little bit, but just before I forget it, there's the incredible fact that on invading, well, on, on invading Crimea, Putin announced proudly the Jews there can now celebrate Rosh Hashanah again. Yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah, it's like now because it was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a Passover, it was right, it was Passover because it was April. He's like, we, we're doing it for the Jews. Now our brothers, the Jews, can celebrate Passover. It was great. And the Jews are looking I mean, at each other saying, we do this every year. <laughs> yeah, they do, they, they do this every year. And what was funny was that the, the Chabad rabbis, it split Chabad down the middle because the Chabad rabbis, their cousins, are brothers and brothers in law, and they're all married to each other. Great. And you literally had, you literally had a split between the Russian and the Ukrainian Chabad. I don't write about this in the book; is fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. the rabbi, the rabbi in the aforementioned synagogue in Sevastopol was literally like the cousin of the rabbi in Kharkiv and the, the the second cousin of a rabbi in Odessa by marriage. And like they all, you know, they all had to put out competing statements in order to make, you know, the secular authorities in their new country happy. Which is always the case of Jews, you know. Hmm. Did you see the um, what is his status? The chief rabbi in Ukraine he put out as Frank Sinatra, sing him singing Frank Sinatra for Yom Kippur. Which one? Uh, which which uh, which? Uh, do you mean Dov Bleich or or uh... I, the one with the big bushy beard? Oh uh, yes, he's very nice. Also, he he's a star now. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, I, I guess he uh... wasn't expecting that. So there are a couple of chief rabbis. Right, we're talking about Moshe Asman, Giuliani's great friend. Hold on a second. I'll find it for you. It's it's Moshe Asman, yes. It must be Moshe Asman. Um, He's a star. Do you know him? I know all the rabbis, yes. I know Moshe. I know I know Rabbi Asman, yes. Uh, yes. Mo, Rabbi Asman is a real... Moshe is a real fighter. Asman, yeah. Rabbi Asman became a, a star in Ukrainian social media for his, like, very over-the-top... Oh. The end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. It's crazy. The love, the life that's full, I travel each. And every highway just more than this. I needed more. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's every funny because all the, all the, yeah, it's all the all the chief rabbis of Ukraine were either born in St. Petersburg or served in the Israeli Defense Forces. It's all very funny. Um yeah, he's great. He's become a like a media celebrity in all over Ukraine for his over the top patriotism. Literally, like a, a, like a shotgun on one hand and a Torah on the other one. No, Pasaran, They will not kill us. They will not take us. They will not just take us into the into the never regions. They will not pass. You know, it's, it's 
yeah and god bless him um it's so astonishing that putin has managed to convince the number of americans he's convinced that he's fighting nazis yeah what's uh, astonishing about that what's astonishing what? is how effective the propaganda is and how how in, how weak we've been in the face of it well you take a step forward you literally have a uh, you literally have a kind of new version of fascism i mean it's very complicated i'm not i'm not one of these people that refers to the russians the fascists the russian fascism it is a postmodern regime with ver- with, a, with a new version of fascism it's not a complete dic- it's not a complete uh, Hitlerite, Hitlerite-style regime in terms of political economy. The country doesn't have total control of of uh, of the regime in, uh, in a way that Hitler did. It's not totally. I'm, uh, I'm not fascist. fond of using yeah. the word fascism to describe these. I, I'm not either. It is it I mean, is fascism, fascism wide or whatever. It's a just particular like... movement in a particular period of time that only made sense as a contraposition to Bolshevism. That's right. There's no more Bolshevism, right? And the and the and this regime doesn't have a this regime does not have a um have any kind of like fascist uh, theory. Doesn't have a mystical essentialist vitalist component to it. Doesn't have a theory to it. It's a mishmash. It's like a postmodern version of fascism. It's, it's a, a dictator. It's hmm? it's a tyranny. We have a good old fashioned word for that. Well, it is a it is a tyranny, but uh, conceptually speaking, it has other characteristics of tyranny, which are which are more postmodern, yeah. uh, both forward looking and backward looking at the same time. It's very interesting. I don't. Uh, the reason I'm saying this, I don't like the misusage of the word fascism. I don't like it in America. I don't like it in Eastern Europe. But it is kind of fascism. We do have a kind of fasci country, a dictatorial regime. Uh, which is is committing basically genocide against its neighbor in order to yeah. denazify a country genocidal yeah. and a country run by Jews basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean Ukraine run. Yeah, I mean that's. But did you see? Was it yesterday? The I mean, I, I I say run by Jews in a funny way, but like the pre- the president, his chief of staff, and the defense minister upon the invasion were Jews. And when he got rid of the Jewish defense minister, you put him in a, a Crimean Tatar Muslim defense minister. That's not a Nazi regime, obviously. No. And you do have a kind of Nazi regime, a light or like fasci regime, trying to denazify a, uh, a country led by a Ukrainian, a secular Ukrainian Jew. It's like it's it a, a, a historical. So distressing that Putin's that Russian propaganda has been as successful as it has been. Maybe it would be. Yeah, different- yeah, that's how propaganda works. It's successful. No, you would think that we would have I mean, we have a climate of freedom of expression. The truth is supposed to rise and defeat the the lies, but it doesn't seem to be. Rand Paul, there's yesterday or the day before, was standing up and going on about how Ukraine was corrupt, and I mean, I mean, it is corrupt, but, but he was suggesting that Ukraine's corruption, its repression of it, of Christians, and its um. Well, he, he's an opportunist. I mean, he and the people who make those arguments are opportunists. Well, he's an opportunist <laughs> along very particular lines. He just echoes right. Moscow's line. And yeah, that's right. Um, Kathy Young re- replied something. She she replied that this was objectionable in some way. I don't remember exact words. And the number of people who jumped in to echo what Rand Paul had said 
very certain of it. They're just certain that Ukraine is full of Nazis profoundly no better than Russia, certainly, uh, no different from Russia. And this is just some sort of conflict between one authoritarian thug and another. There was, it, it's, how can so many Americans believe something that is so abjectly stupid? Because the media, the legacy media has collapsed. Because no, the, the legacy media is not promoting this. Well, look, I, yeah, you really want to get into media. No, the legacy media has collapsed. And because after a couple of years of Russiagate and other stupidity uh, and the general collapse of, of the uh, uh, of the standards of the legacy media, no one trusts the legacy media. I mean, the, the media has only like 25 or 28 percent of American people who say that they respect it or trust it. It's the least trusted institution in American life. So people have retreated into their own little epistemic bubbles. And Ukraine has become a heuristic for other sorts of culture war. Uh, and, and it's cost free. Everything that you as a Republican or as a conservative might attack within America, uh, there are costs and benefits within internal American culture war stuff. Ukraine is far away. Most people have never been there. It's cost free. You can just you can just blow bait about it. And no one cares. Right. We're also in the age of instant communications on social media. You would think that people who are in doubt about this would just speak to a Ukrainian. They're not in doubt. They just don't care, Claire. It's different. You don't sound as angry about this as you should be. I. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's funny that the Ukrainian that. nationalist is explaining to you why Ukrainian patriots explaining to you why he's not. I'm. Yeah. I. Uh, I. I think some of those people are are deceived. Some well, of military people... aid is being held up and might in fact stop completely if Trump is elected because of this crap. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it doesn't make me happy. I mean, I'm fighting against it, but, but like I understand the deep roots of it. And the deep roots of it are partly the failure of American elites in order to tend to their own garden and, and keep up the credibility of their own institutions. Um, and, and, you know, Ukraine's become political football, especially with a Trumpist base. I, I don't buy this as the elite's fault. It is the moral responsibility of people who refuse to inform themselves and get their news from enemy propaganda no, people are idiots no, people are idiots i don't i don't believe that the popolo has more responsibility or like even you, even agency. like dumb oxen yeah i'm, I'm kind of a misanthrope i'm an eastern european misanthrope i don't i believe that you know like the, the people who are spreading the propaganda who should know better everyone's i don't like the the the, the people who don't understand russia great or ukraine gate those things are hard to understand you have to have a lot of insider information and a good good sense and people have a lot to do. They have kids. They have busy lives. They they are you know they they rely on experts like me to explain things to them, and some of those experts failed, or and some of those experts were in the media that spread Russia gates. Um, One thing that I was Rachel Maddow, you know, reading this though is it's just going to go completely over the heads of the people who most need to read it. It's just it's literate. It's it's they're not going to read a book like this. Look, I, if I sell 10,000 copies of an academic uh, book about uh, uh, important things about Jews and Ukrainians, I'll be happy. I, I don't I, I didn't get into this business. I would have gone into banking like my father demanded if I wanted to a popular success, you know? Yeah, but you just said it's for me to explain these things to them. So how are you going to explain it? <sighs> yeah, that's you, you've, you found the contradiction. Yes, uh, the contradiction is internal. 
I don't know. I, I really don't know. I uh, I believe that the providence of God and the help of Claire Berlinski will get us through the long, dark night. I wish we had a president who was capable of using the bully pulpit to explain this. Well, the pre- the president is playing a double game because he doesn't want the, he doesn't want the Ukrainians to win. That's the thing. He doesn't care. I mean, he he. Uh, I I know so much. I know so much. Tell me what you know. Some of it's off the record. <laughs> well, can you give I, me, like I, I, hints? Uh, so. In a particular way, that the the failure of the failure of the Biden administration is the failure of Biden himself, because he was the Obama administration's point man in Ukraine in in two thousand fourteen to two thousand sixteen, right? Until until the Trump administration came in, and he it was his portfolio. Obama gave it to him, and since the Obama administration did not want the Ukrainians to to fight back, they told them. They, they said, "There's no what possible world is there in which the 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 we care about Ukraine more than the Russians do." They kind of um, always, from the very beginning, tied the hands of the Ukrainians and and how they could respond. So the Ukrainians muddled through, and the Russians didn't use enough force because they weren't. I mean, they they weren't willing to to go all in. I mean, the, in order to achieve his policy objectives, Putin really should have uh, in, invaded in this way in 2014. He would have taken the country. There was no army. Mm-hmm. He should have done that nine years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago. It's too late. The Ukrainians had the chance to build state capacity and a very serious military apparatus, as people have noticed. Not nearly as serious as the Russian one, but you know, serious enough to give a good fight. Well, without a navy, they've taken out the Black Sea Fleet. Well, they had, they had a navy in 2014. Some of it defected and some of it was uh, blown up by the Russians, uh, sunk by the Russians. They don't have a navy now. They did in 2014. The uh, uh, Biden administration is in some ways doing a good job. In other ways, it did not prepare the Ukrainians for the war. And it's made it's prolonged this war by a lot by by slow rolling it. So I'm, I'm not one of these guys who, who thinks Biden's doing good. I, I mean, I'll defend him to Republican well, conservatives. Because you know, we, we agree about this, but um, you suggested that you had some insight into Biden's thinking. Um, you know, what happened to the Biden who's, who was so outraged by what he saw in Ukraine that he said in Poland, this man cannot remain in power and his aides had to walk it back? Yeah, that was a great moment. I was there. I was there when he said it. I um. Yeah, I, I wish that we still had that guy now, but he, the National Security Council around him is just too timid, and they are, they are too uh, afraid of the uh, of of the uh, uh, of the Russians and escalation, nuclear war, escalation in the Black Sea. You know, they they're just not they're not ready to go full in, and so they they've made certain decisions that they want to slow roll this. They they don't want the Russians to win, but neither do they want them to lose too badly. It's insane. It's insane. It's just the wrong posture strategically. And what drives me crazy is that there's no alternative. This is where a normal Republican Party should be making this criticism and should be trustworthy with national security. And instead, they're a complete catastrophe and a disaster. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not saying that the fear of nuclear war is an insane fear. Of course, I think it's a very real thing to be afraid of. But the idea, you know, you either trust in deterrence and or you, trained, or you don't. I mean, going halfway is, is is the worst strategy. Well, not the worst strategy, just not the worst. Have, it could be the worse. Second worst strategy. It's the worst second worst strategy, right? I mean, and I just don't see that. You know, I think Trump would, will withdraw from NATO as his first in his first day in 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 power if he's reelected. And I just don't see Americans having a conversation about how serious this situation is and what this would mean for the security of the entire world. Yeah. I don't know what to do beyond what I say and what I do to get people to take it seriously. Uh, I I don't I don't know I really don't know. Uh, I mean, will people read my book? Will it change any minds? If I change the minds of fifty people, if there are fifty good men, should we level the city? I don't know. Do you think people? You think fifty people will read my book and change their minds? 50, probably. 500, yes. 5,000, possibly. The book certainly probably. changed my views um, and explained okay. a lot to me. Well, good. So, okay. So, let's 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 keep going, right? So, I mean, All right. Tell, do, tell do, people about... Do you believe in the power of a text? Do you believe in the power of a text, Claire? Absolutely. I do. I do. Very Jewish of you. Tell people about Andrei Sheptitsi. Sheptitsi. So, Sheptitsi. Andrei Sheptitsi was this very heroic and remarkable man. Is a giant, a gentle, beautiful giant. He was like a six foot nine uh, Polish Ukrainian aristocrat. He was the head of the Greco Catholic Church during the war, and he saved a lot of Jews. And he's he's he was pivotal for uh, Jewish Ukrainian relations. His brother Clement did a lot also because of politics. He was never named um, righteous amongst the nations by Yad Vashem, which is of course a great oversight. Very. Well, it seems like more than oversight. It seems they very deliberately decided, no, not righteous enough. There's a lot of politics there. I mean, the the book gets into the politics. I mean, I um, I I wholeheartedly agree with the campaign to make him righteous amongst the nations. This is this is a good thing, and we should do it. And that would be one way of paying back debts. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of very important and smart and influential people who work on that campaign. Um. And I'd like to count myself amongst those people. But, it, it, you know, a lot of the people who ran um, Yad Vashem were Soviet Jews from the Russian side. The previous uh, gentleman oh, actually Vlad, Vlad, page yep. one, page 80, you've got a big whopper here. If Zelensky actually does become president of Ukraine? Uh, well, I mean, this is a reprint. Right. Uh in what context did I say this? Yeah, I didn't um, notice that. You're talking about Poroshenko, and you say he's not the only candidate playing the Jewish card. Zelensky, the current front runner, is a 41-year-old Jewish comedian and actor whose primary suitability for the job is his experience having played a school teacher. Uh, well, I mean, this is, it says at the end of a book, at the end of that essay, that it was reprinted from 2018. I should I should put that at the front. Yeah, you uh, should put uh, it in the front. You should put it in the front. Page 81, you say? Uh, page... What page is it? My book is being edited yeah, in real 80. time. Page 80. Page... Okay, so in front of that essay, put that yeah. it was 
an italic text. Thank you so much, Claire. You're so very welcome. You're so very welcome. The one other thing before you go, I, I wanted you made an observation which I think is really important, which I'd never thought about, saying that, that the Holodomor should be understood as a Jewish catastrophe as well as Ukraine. Totally. And I had never thought about that. I had never thought that that's our history too. Well, so, so the Holodomor, of course, uh, killed hundreds of thousands of Jews who were Ukrainians also. They were also in the countryside. You know, if you can't get bread, you can't get bread. It doesn't matter which religion or what color your eyes are. There, there were hundreds of thousands of uh, Ukrainian Jews who starved to death during the Holodomor because of uh, the fact that they were Ukrainian peasants rather than Jews, well, first and foremost. That's not more part of Jewish memory. Is it because what happened subsequently was just blotted out all other memory? Or is it because no one survived it to tell the story to their kids? No, a lot of people, a lot of people survived it. The people, the, you know, the Jews who were in the, the in the countryside starved. The people who were in the, in the cities didn't have, right. uh, I mean... Uh, you know, the people went from the countryside into the cities looking for food, and they, they, they were more likely to survive in the cities. It's the, it's in the countrysides that, that people starve to death, right? Uh, although, I mean, some people died in the cities also. Uh, uh, but it, 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 did, it did purge the countryside of, uh, of, of the people who were living there. And so the Jews in the countryside were the ones that starved along with their Ukrainian uh, uh, farmer, peasant, whatever, neighbors. And uh, a lot of it... But by definition, starve. You do not emigrate. You do not pass the memory of this down to your kids and your grandkids. Yeah, but if there were a lot of people who starved, just ran away to the nearest city and found food there. Not everyone who's starving died. Some people survived. Uh, I mean, like millions of people died died during the starvation. It was terrible, and it was the Ukrainian catastrophe. But like you know, starvation does not target people based on on religion or culture, and like. How many you either have food or... do you have any rough estimates? I, I imagine it's a hundred thousand. It's a question I've never seen in, uh, interrogated, but it, it's also important to remember that the the uh, the large scale uh, the large scale starvation and and the entire population of Ukraine watching what was going on, thousands of people eating their children or eating their dogs or just dying in the streets of bloated bellies. The 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 trauma of that. And the trauma of the commies, uh, the communists going around killing peasants and taking away their land, uh, it, it created the uh, kind of the the preamble in terms of it capacity created, for what happened for yeah. seven, what happened for what happened six years later. Yeah, you, like you discuss that in the book. You, you suggest that's not something that's not something that people if you. Uh, scholars have said that but it's not something that you generally find in the arguments and the debate and you have to understand that the that the holodomor led to the trauma that allowed for uh, uh partly allowed for the holocaust to take place i'm not saying that is the cause clearly not i'm not some sort of revisionist it but in order to, to understand devaluation of life and the toleration of obscenity well, I mean, like, it's just you're living in a psychotic place. You're living in a crazy place where people are dying, like in a, a place where communists are running out of guns, where you, you just you just survived a brutal war and civil war 10 years ago, uh, uh, 19 years ago. Your parents survived a brutal war. And then 10 years ago, seven years ago, uh, six and a half years ago, people were starving to death. 
and now uh, there's an occupation and another war and people are dying again. Like, okay, well, it contributes to an atmosphere of death, of devastation, of destruction, of trauma. You know, it's a cascade effect. That's what I'm saying. I'm no way, please do not, uh, anyone call and accusing me of saying that the, that the Haldemore led to the Holocaust in any way. I, what I'm saying, I think, and I'm trying to say very precisely, is to not cause any uh, histological or revisionist issues, is that the suffering of the Holodomor uh, created the, the atmosphere of trauma that, uh, and, you know, being able to ignore trauma amongst your neighbors as a survival mechanism that, that led to the capacity of the Nazis to, to, to kill people. Yeah. Obviously not the only reason, uh, clearly uh, this, this is a, it's a multi vector, multi origin story, but it, it's, it's an underplayed aspect of a story that you don't hear spoken about very often, which should be. And as you point out later in the book, when you're looking at contemporary Eastern Europe, uh, and especially when you're looking at the emergence of far far right groups across the region, it has roots in the absence of a proper mourning of what has transpired in the past century. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean, like the the OUN, like even the OUN was a, a response to what was a response to the loss of democratic self governance. The Polish. Uh, uh, the Polish and the Ukrainians in, in the borderlands, Poland and Ukraine, started killing each other, whereas they lived harmoniously, more or less, in the under Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they had devolved educational rights and cultural linguistic rights. Yeah? yeah. So a lot of the Polish nationalist stuff and Ukrainian nationalist stuff, with the Jews in between, of course, always without guns, uh, was an outcome of, you know, the destruction of democratic norms. I mean, I'm not saying that Austro-Hungarian Empire was the most democratic place. It was actually in many places, uh, many ways, very liberal. It's well known for that, especially in 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 its uh, in its uh, uh, outposts, like Chernowitz, where my family's from, or or the uh, or, or Lviv, right? These are these are places where. Uh, uh, where Jews, Ukrainians, and Poles live together in some sort of productive, harmonious way until until World War One, until the Bolshevik War, until uh, until the communists, and then the Nazis, and you know the, the Polish partition, all this. You know, uh, the Jews fall. The Jews fall victims to various very nasty very nasty things that happen because of not them. I think that's one way of putting it. Like the, the pogroms, the, the 1905 pogroms were peasant pogroms, uh, but they were also, this was an effusion of, of uh, unhappiness with its Tsarist state, right? This is, these are the urban riots that the, that the Tsar's regime was so petrified of. They didn't want pogroms against the Jews. It was an effusion of the same kind of peasant rioting that would bring down the regime. Right, so Upa and the Valin massacres. This is an outcome of, you know, uh, basic tribal warfare, right? 
And I mean, I'm not, not I'm not apologizing for any of this. I'm trying to. No, trying to, I, you, yeah. I'll just read right from the book. It's you write um, arguments over who has suffered the most ultimately debase everyone involved. The extension of mutual empathy need not exclude anyone. The Jewish diaspora in Israel can do more to acknowledge the local particular history without undermining the unique horror of the Holocaust, just as Eastern Europeans need to be responsible and sensitive to historical realities as they craft post-Soviet national identities. But all of that will require overcoming contemporary geopolitical realities on top of the already heavy burden of history. And this is the thing, this war, the blood had barely dried when this war broke out and no one is getting any chance to come to terms in any way with any of these horrors yeah that's right that's absolutely right yeah all right on that note let's draw this to a close because uh yeah yeah um yeah thank you so much claire i'm i'm yeah i'm very grateful the there's a lot a lot to say there is there's this book is a culmination of 10 years of my work i'm trying to you know having returned to the land of my ancestors i'm a re repatriate of course i'm a repat this is where my ancestors are from this is where my wife's from this is where my people are from i, I have a deep deep identification with the ukrainians and the jews i'm deeply eastern european in that manner i really these are my people i've i've been criticized uh, by some jews actually for being too soft i don't think i have been actually i i'm very empathetic to the ukrainian um view of, of their own history. I'm very, very empathetic to the, to the un, to understanding of the fact that what happened during World War II uh, took place without the Ukrainians having their own states, you know, like the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Germans had a German state. What they did was under the auspices of a German state. The, the, neither the Poles nor the Ukrainians uh, can be held to the same level of, um, of, uh, responsibility as can the french or the german populations who are governed by by uh, by frenchmen and germans right uh, whatever happened during world war ii it happened under the auspices of occupation and so the the ukrainian political nation just like the polish political nation i i as a jew do not feel has uh, the same level of responsibility as as uh uh you know what 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 uh when you compare what? levels of responsibility with Hitler, you, you it doesn't mean it doesn't suggest that there's I mean, there's there's plenty of of evil to go before you're at Hitler's level of responsibility. Yeah, so, yeah, but they didn't have their own state. Is the is the point? And like, I'm very I'm very empathetic to that argument. Obviously, uh, you couldn't have those arguments, those historical arguments, before 2014. And the Ukrainian state went very far in having uh, a, a, a very long-sided conversation, dialogue within within the country about all this, right? Not as much as it could have. And also, at the same time, they were celebrating people like like uh, uh, like the Canadian gentleman from the SS guy who stood up oh, in the God, parliament. That, that was a screw-up. That was a screw. That was a terrible, terrible screw. But what does it say about Canada that no one in no one present thought if he was fighting the Soviets, that means he was not a good guy? <laughs> um. Yeah, that's yeah. It's it's kind of weird that they didn't that they don't know the history. I don't know the Canadians. At all. 
too. Like I, it's obvious to me. I mean, you have to. Uh, I mean, he was fighting the Soviets. He was on the bad side of things. I mean, like obviously, a lot of Ukrainians were fighting the Soviets because they wanted their own country. You know, and I they, think they were fighting. Might not fight know what we're Soviet. talking about. Oh, oh, Claire, explain, please, please, uh, please. Because um, I don't remember his name, but um, they, when Zelensky was in Canada, they honored someone who was portrayed as a Ukrainian war hero, and so yeah. So uh, he, uh, this gentleman's name was uh, Yaroslav Kunka, a 98-year-old Ukrainian-Canadian who fought in, you know, he was he fought in, in the Waffen-SS. He was a veteran of the Waffen-SS, and it was like the Galicia 1 division. Uh, the, the division was, was, you know, put together after... A lot of the, the Holocaust and the, the, the historians say that the Galicia One Division didn't actually, as a unit, do anything against the Jews. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of the auxiliary policemen and soldiers and volunteers who joined up did kill Jews and did kill Poles. Well, I mean, it's an entire mess. You don't honor a member of the Waffen-SS in the Canadian Parliament. But no one figured out that that's what he was because they just didn't put two and two together. Yeah, it's like... Uh, you know, it's like, how do you not ex- understand that a Canadian who fought against the Russians was fighting in the woods against the the uh, partisans, you know? It's the kind of historic illiteracy that, well, do you remember when Reagan went to Bitburg? I, I, I don't because... Um, right. I mean, he, for some reason, he was scheduled to go and lay a wreath at Bitburg. All these Waffenists, that's, we're buried... And there was a huge controversy about it when people realized this is not a good place for the American president to be going. But there was also this real worry that if he pulled out at the last minute, it would be very offensive. And no one was quite sure what protocol demanded. My grandfather had the solution to the problem. He was very proud of it. He said he should go. He should put down the wreath. Then he should unzip his trousers and piss on the grave. Well, that's that's uh, that's that's a uh, that's a position. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this great talk. It was really, really nice to talk to you about it. Everyone go out and buy this book. It's trending on Amazon.com. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. And so it's through without exemption. I planned.